Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. What did the apparition, what did it look like? Scott, yes. don't go to Reddit. I wanted to write a book that was like an homage to my home state. Little Gray Man is in your space. Fairies, duh, of course, fairies as well. You David yeah. the Gnome, and it's like, this is no schlock production. It was voiced by America's dad. Oh, it was Tom Bosley. What? Tom, Bosley Tom Bosley, yeah, from, from yeah. Happy Days. You can cut all this, but gosh. And the bed bugs came in through the bathroom window. Notoriously haunted hotel. And it's go time. Does Oscar uh, bark? He does. I can even fix the toilet. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Peloton, Wild Grain, Squarespace, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. We've talked about ghosts extensively over the years on Astonishing Legends. Are they real? Or are they all just cases of wishful thinking and misidentified events? For the sake of argument tonight, let's say ghosts are real. This gives us the freedom to focus on what ghosts are. Now we're peering further into the void and looking for answers. Some scientific community members will tell you the study of this sort of thing and all those involved with it are absurd. You can't faithfully reproduce a ghost or haunting. Therefore, you can't study it. Ergo, any analysis or conclusion can't ever be reached. But what would happen if you could faithfully reproduce a haunting? At will, and regularly enough for it to be observed, recorded, and measured. If you did that, would the world finally look seriously at what might be behind communication with the dead? But wait a minute, we've already made an assumption. The dead. What if ghosts weren't dead at all? What if they never lived in the first place? In 1972, a Toronto-based parapsychological research society led by Dr. A.R. George Owen assembled a group of volunteers to try something never before attempted. They would invent a fictional ghost named Philip and then try to contact the departed spirit through a long series of seance-like sessions and other methods. For over a year, the group of eight met weekly, and for over a year, nothing happened. But then they changed tack and began to mimic traditional seances more closely, paying particular attention to earlier research that suggested the disposition and attitude of the participants could affect the outcomes. Upon doing this, they began to report feeling presence and energy in the room. This was followed by table vibrations, breezes, and shockingly, rapping sounds in answer to questions about Philip's fabricated life. On some occasions, the table would tilt on a single leg or move across the room without human contact. Some of these events have actually been captured on film and the audio of the knocking sounds has been recorded. Eventually, the group of eight became experts in the experiment that is now most frequently known as Conjuring Philip. But Philip never existed. He was an invention. What really happened during the Philip experiment? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. What the group was hoping for was the possibility of the production of thought forms, even the rarer possibility of the production of a tangible ghost, which could be seen by people other than the group who would be witnesses. 
Iris M. Owen from her book, Conjuring Up Philip. Join us tonight for part one of our series on Conjuring Philip. And we're back. That we are. And from this side of the veil for at least one more show. A couple of quick notes tonight. Mm. Firstly, we'd like to thank Paul Gledhill again for joining us during our last episode on the Great Mole Air Mystery. You can find his UK-based podcast, Anomaly, wherever you get your podcasts. Absolutely. Thank you again, Gledders, for joining us. Also, folks, if you're missing us, or I guess more specifically me during the dark weeks, I was just on our good friend Bradley Netherton's podcast, Opening the Doors, in an episode where Bradley and I discussed Jim Morrison's fascination with Charles Fort and his own mystical experiences. I don't know if you knew about that, Scott. I know about one of them. I think we talked about it during the Little Bastard series. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, he was also a huge fan of Book of the Dam, Charles Fort's uh, oh, yeah, uh, nice. showcased, uh, or I guess his, uh, his coming out book. And uh, took a lot of that to heart. Well, we had a lot of fun, so check out Opening the Doors wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, and uh, patrons, you may remember Bradley from our Junk Drawer Patreon-exclusive show on UFOs and the popular music of the 60s and 70s. That was one of our very popular ones. Speaking of the Junk Drawer, which is available to all patrons at the $5 and above tier, we'll be doing one within a few days where we actually review the footage available of the Philip Experiment in action with Richard Haddam, We'll be doing that live on video and talking about whether or not we believe that all that seance table movement that's going to be coming up tonight is really happening on its own. There's a lot of uh, neat stuff there to uh, look at and try to figure out. I've even got a card table out so I can do some experiments. Oh, that's going to be a fun one because you really can't tell what's going on. I know it sounds simple, but I can't wait for you and Rich to argue about it and each try and outdo each other with a skeptical, <laughs> rational explanation. <laughs> and last but not least... Tess wanted us to let everyone know that it's once again time for the ultimate battle of the bizarre and unexplained. Astonishing Madness 2023. The annual tournament of mysteries and legends, hosted by the team at Astonishing Legends. Hey, from cryptids to unknown compelling forces, this bracket-style competition will leave you on the edge of your seat as you vote for your favorite phenomena. Don't miss out on the excitement. Join the madness today. How? Head to any of our socials for more information and links, or email astonishingcontact at gmail.com, and Tess can catch you up and give you the bracket. Reminder, brackets are due March 13th, which is just a few days after this episode comes out, and voting kicks off March 14th, so move fast. All righty, folks, we've got a great show for you tonight. So, Scott, how do we bring Philip up from the imaginary dead? Well, that's the funny thing, I think, about this mm. particular story. Is whether or not you wind up believing this went down the way that they maintain it did, it was a mm -hmm. lot of work. It took a lot of time. <laughs> it was a lot yeah. of commitment. If it was a hoax, it was a massive amount of time spent creating the hoax. Years, years and years yeah. of meeting and being truly dedicated to something, which is one of the reasons that I don't think it was a hoax, at least certainly not in the traditional conscious sense, no matter what I believe. And I'm not making any conclusions yet here. I'm just saying as this unfolds, this whole story is centered around something that was a complete craze just prior mm -hmm. to this for a while, which was seances and tables levitating. And it's almost yeah. a joke in the skeptic world with just like, oh, come on, tables floating around, da, da, da. This, and this is our <laughs> first real serious look at that. From this viewpoint, because you got to figure in the 1970s, all right, let's say 50 years prior to that, not that long ago, is when, as we've analyzed before, the rise in, well, it had been going on, actually. I mean, you can maybe clock spiritism to 
And there's a difference between spiritism and spiritualism. Yes, which we've talked about before, although I confess I don't remember them now. We discussed a lot of these nascent concepts, these seminal ideas back in the Watsika Wonder series. Oh, right. Because that, you know, during that time, that's when these ideas are being formulated. But what's interesting is that it never really went away. Of course, there, like anything, there's a craze, whether it's uh, cup stacking or making bracelets. Like, I don't know what the kids are into these days. But the, the idea is that uh, that will cup come stacking. around again. That, I think that <laughs> like, was done like eight years record ago. Record players. <laughs> then that was a, that's old technology. And then, of course, yeah. uh, there's hipsters in Brooklyn uh, collecting vinyl back in the 80s and then it did, you know, in the 90s. And then, of course, it it comes back again. Now mullets yeah. are back. So yeah. I, you can't put anything away. And certainly this spiritual movement as we looked at before, hit a peak as it's known or theorized by sociologists because you had World War I. There was a lot of death. Yeah. A lot of people weren't coming back and you never got to say goodbye. Yeah. So people were trying to reach out and contact people. But also what's interesting here is that there's a social aspect, as we talked about in the Ouija yes. series as well. And that's a fun party game to a degree back then. They viewed it much differently than we do now. And that is a huge aspect here in that there is a major social aspect to this experiment, which I don't think they predicted when they started. And that's what fascinates me is that the methodologies they chose, because what do people always say when they're rightfully skeptical of these kind of things or, or even cynical? They want this to be done in a laboratory situation and they want the results to be repeatable. And that's what you have here, or at least was attempted with this and that it was under lab conditions, you could say, controlled conditions, and they were able to repeat the effects. And, and it was closely Yeah, it was yeah. closely monitored. So yeah. either they were really good magicians and everybody was in on it, including the scientific overseers with this, because I'll put this this way. You and I love close-up magic. We love stage magic. We love all yeah. kinds of magic. Been to a few shows. Right. And even with a really good close-up magician or card mechanic, if you know a little bit what's going on, you can take a little peek behind the curtain. It's like, oh, he's clinking the thing under the handkerchief because he's trying to convince you that's your ring under there or something just materialized. But you can actually tell that they're clinking a, a spoon that's hidden. There's a little yes. subterfuge there. And for us, that's what's enjoyable. It's not that complicated here with this experiment, but you're actually getting an effect, a phenomenon to happen before your eyes and before the camera. So what is really going on? And I think that's what's fascinating for me. It doesn't appear to be able to be easily debunked. So what is happening? That's the question. Yeah, and a lot of the observers had those questions, and, and we'll definitely be talking about that. You, you know what I was just reminded of, Forrest, that, that we've had the good fortune to do was to go see the amazing magician Helder Gamardes in L.A. Yeah. We saw him once in person, and then mm -hmm. later uh, during lockdown, my family also attended uh, right. a show on Zoom with him. Just unbelievable. I see now, I was just looking him up because I hadn't seen one of his latest shows, but I guess he's gone and been a TED speaker since oh, we that. saw him. That's pretty <laughs> That's amazing. Cool. This guy is unbelievable magician. Yeah. Unbelievable. We sat right at a table with him, like as close as you would sit playing blackjack in Vegas to a dealer. That's how close you yeah. are when he's doing the tricks. And you just, you can't, you have no idea what's going on. If you're interested in his shows, it's thisishelder.com. T-H-I-S is Helder, H-E-L-D-E-R. Just quickly. That's right. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. We're not out to tear anything apart. That's not the fun of it. We want to suspend that disbelief. We want to be amazed and wowed. 
we're not of the attitude that the wool is being pulled over our eyes and we need to pull that wool back. And right. I, I did, I don't know if it was from him, but somebody was telling me the story but uh, about a magician was, I think, at the Magic Castle and was doing a, a card thing. And one of the people there, the gal, reached over and grabbed the cards from the hands. And, of course, you know, she could see how the trick was done. But that is such bad form. Yeah. <laughs> you don't tug on Superman's cape. Yeah. You don't pull the mask off the old low ranger and you, and you don't mess around with Jim and you don't pull the cards out of the magician's hands. No, definitely not. Because the idea is that you, it's not to catch them at something. So the difference here is that this is not a magic trick. No. These aren't magicians. Is that something strange and unexplainable is going on for anybody that witnesses this. So the idea is, okay, exactly what is going on, because if these are just sounds and it's some kind of, again, that's the difference between the supernatural, that it's a ghost, or I think something paranormal, which is a concentration of energy. And like the electronic fog or whatever we talked about before of, of things happening that are unexpected, but and they're mysterious and mystical, but there's an explanation in science uh, that we may understand, that's the difference to me. And so what's causing this effect? Well, yeah, I agree with all of that. And again, part of what intrigued me about this, and I'll have to say, Tess, we were looking for topics, and Tess actually sent this one, put mm -hmm. this one into our Slack. And I was just like, oh, this looks really good, along with several other ones. I was like, well, I really immediately, I knew a little bit about this, but it was in the back right. recesses of my mind. And when I came back to look at it, I was like, oh, no, this is super interesting because you've got these people trying to interact with an invented ghost. They made it up. They're going into this knowing that if they achieve contact, it's with something that didn't exist until they created it collectively. Right. It changes everything about it, in my opinion, This what this experiment is, and this approach to the idea that maybe when we are communicating, if we are doing that effectively, it's not with what we think it is. And not only that, it's something entirely different from what's been considered up until that moment. The other thing that's really fascinating about the Philip experiment is that the results that they got were not what they set out to do. Their initial goal was to actually manifest a visible apparition, and they didn't get that to happen. But it turns out that what did happen, as Forrest often says, brought up a lot more questions, and it was some mm. sort of physical interaction with an unseen thing, or at least that's what it appeared to be. All right, so tonight, a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to center around a book that was published in 1976. Mm -hmm. And this, again, this particular experiment is, let's say you don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts. Of course, I think most people that listen to our show probably mm -hmm. do. We know we have those open-minded skeptics out there, though, that enjoy mm -hmm. the ideas that, of things that we talk about. But the point of this particular experiment is not, it's not about whether you believe in ghosts. Because the people that are conducting it, they aren't really trying to talk to a ghost. They're trying to create something from nothing. Right. You're asking the wrong question if you want to see proof. And <laughs> this is almost as close as you can get to a ghost in a jar. Right. And once again, thanks to Rachel Langan and her dad, Mark Langan, two great artists. And it was Rachel who made the, the ghost in the jar. Yes. Uh, because in that, people ask you, well, what is that reference? And and that goes back to, actually, it's also said by the uh, the Russian uh, mobility scientist uh, about Bigfoot. is like, Western scientists will not be satisfied until there's a Bigfoot corpse or stuffed one in their office. Yes. And the same yeah. thing with we were joking about with ghosts. Is people, that's the kind of proof they want. Like, get it contained. I want to look at it. I want to poke at it, knock on the glass like a, a, like a goldfish. I want to see it react. 
before they will believe in this. And so you don't have that quite to a degree, but you have some very compelling reactions. And that's what we're going to look at uh, to begin this story. But to your point, it's not about trying to prove ghosts are real. Right. And that's the wrong attitude, I think, when you go ghost hunting, because you're not going to do that really to any satisfaction. And it's not about proving there's an afterlife, because as these folks go into their experiment, they're just assuming that there is some kind of afterlife. What they're trying to ascertain is what is this phenomenon? Right. And can it be, in a way, artificially created? Right. So let's come around to, again, to the book that we want to discuss the most here in part one, which is the best coverage of the Philip experiment. Mm -hmm. Again, the book is called Conjuring Up Philip, An Adventure in Psychokinesis. It was written by Iris M. Owen with Margaret Sparrow. It was published in 1976 by Fitzhenry and Whiteside in Canada, which is uh, where the uh, psychical research organization was in Toronto that undertook this experiment. Uh, first things first, this book is a great read. I actually really mm -hmm. enjoyed reading it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information in there about different kinds of interactions. It evoked a lot of memories for me of things we've covered over the years, the Bell Witch, other kinds of hauntings where you're dealing with something that's seemingly omniscient. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, as you said earlier, Forrest, you're able to reproduce this over and over once it starts working. And on right. top of that, other folks are able to come and witness it like they did with the Bell Witch and like they did in so many other stories. And they come in incredulous and they wind up slack-jawed and freaked out at what they're seeing. <laughs> it, it's like Michigan J. Frog where maybe you hear the singing but not the dancing. Yeah. Not to characterize it as a, as a character in a cartoon. I'm just saying it's like part of the experience is undeniable. That's what makes this so fascinating. But it's not going to be what everybody wants. It's something different. And, you know, that's an aspect. Everything that we look at here is uh, like Skinwalker Ranch or any of these haunted houses that people go into and they ask for stuff. And it's like, oh, you'll get something. It's just not going to be what you ask for. Right. Especially with Skinwalker. It's like, oh, you want us to do this on camera? Well, we're going to put your post digger up in a tree 70 feet. Right. That's what you're going to get. Right. And it's going to happen behind the camera or just out of right. frame when that happens. And we knew the day before you guys were going to try this and we've already screwed up that experiment for you. Yes. And every other experiment you're going to do till the end of time, because for us, time is a continuum that we can participate in any part of whenever we want. That's Skinwalker yeah. Ranch, but that maybe that's what all of this stuff is. But again, I was going to say this book is very enjoyable, but like yes. any book, especially any period book that you read, you have to think about the cultural filters and the zeitgeist and, and what was going on at the time that it was written. And at this time, we were on the back end, really, of seances. They had kind of had their heyday already, but they were still right, something right. people were very curious about. They were still around in the public mind enough to be like, what was that? Even if we're not all mm -hmm. doing that anymore, was that something? Can we look into that? Did that uncover some new things that we should be looking at? So you do get that sense yeah. from this book. But the other thing that I took away from this book is that from a confirmation bias standpoint, it seemed right. very much like it trended towards, <laughs> hey, look, this all happened. I'm telling you this happened. Why right, wouldn't it right. happen? It's definitely happened. There's a lot of like, this happened, yeah. this happened, this happened. And I was a little bit put off by it. Yeah. Look, just to, to make this all happen, it's like uh, what we said in the cold open 
let's just give this the benefit of the doubt, okay? Yeah. Let's just yeah. suspend disbelief no, because then, it, then it all works. Yes. Right, that's what I'm saying. But yes, of course, you do this for so many years, as you said, and then you write a book about it. And of course, you're going to have, I think, that attitude, not like, well, I don't know, this is all baloney, and you just spent $8 on this book, which is a bunch of uh, garbage. Right. As human beings and human behavior does, you're going to want to have people take this at face value and go along with it. And then we're going to tell you what happened to us. And, you know, we're decent people from all different walks of life. That was also interesting. And the parameters of the experiment were interesting because it does at least follow a little bit of the scientific method in that little stop gaps and errors were introduced to maybe change the, as AI proponents would say, change the weights of the experiment and see if that has any outcome. So it was all very fascinating how it was approached, but it certainly wasn't the first. And as you were saying, in the 1970s, of course, there was a, another wave of uh, metaphysical interest, let's say, stemming from the 60s, the psychedelic 60s into the 70s, into the 80s, and maybe waning a little bit, and maybe it's coming around again. But to your point about the book, it is a fascinating read. And it lays it all out, and they're very transparent about it. You may not believe it, but what I would like people to do right now, and I'll say this uh, at the outset, because they'll say, well, well, look, all of those spiritualists of the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, they were all charlatans, and they're all doing this in the dark. And they, <laughs> I remember Paul Michael Glazer as Houdini taking a shoe off with a sock, and then with his toes, he's ringing a bell. Right. And he was out to really prove that these were all charlatans. And guess what? A lot of them were. But you wonder, were all of them charlatans? And some very smart people, like Dr. Crooks, uh, who studied D.D. Home and has that famous, uh, one of my favorite sayings, as he saw the psychic abilities purportedly of D.D. Home. And again, this is not some rube off the street. He's a very smart scientist of the day. And people were outraged that he said there could be something to these uh, psychokinetic abilities. He was saying, like, look, I didn't say it was possible. I said it happened. Right. This is one of my favorite things. It's like, I, I'm not yeah. telling you how it worked. I'm just telling you what I saw and I examined it and I can't uh, explain it away. So in this book, though, what you get is uh, it's also a nostalgic recounting of that time period, uh, the scientific community's thinking of the day and exactly what happened with some unexpected results. And so for that, it's very entertaining. Hi. I'm Melanie Badger, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. Forrest, in fact, what you were talking about with Dee Dee Home, what was mm -hmm. happening now is people were proving that there was something happening that they couldn't figure out. And this experiment was a reaction to that. Yeah, and that's my point. I just want people to and not even keep an open mind. What I'm saying is that it is that thing of uh, where if you prove uh, there are a bunch of frauds, that proves that those people are frauds. Does it prove that everybody's a fraud? For example, you can see somebody on TV, especially in the, in the 70s, move their eyeglasses. And uh, that is a spot in that uh, interview where the guy grabs the fishing line. You can see how he was doing it, right? He's moving right. it around. And, and, uh, and even uh, my other famous case, I think it was the same gentleman, that there was a piece of paper under a plexiglass box. And that was a real challenge. Like, how are you going to move the, the pencil on the paper that's in the glass box? And it was pretty clever of him. I think under the under uh, pressure, he realized that there's still a half a, you know, a quarter of a millimeter 
of space, and with his exhaling breath, he was able to breathe air underneath and into the box and get the paper to flutter. Right. And people were like, wow. Well, yeah, you have to be a little bit better than that. We're not talking about that kind of chicanery here. But if you can disprove one of them, it doesn't disprove all of them. You have to take it case by case. Right. Unless, of course, you don't believe in any of this, and then it doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're you're starting off that it's all impossible. Right. So what they were trying to do was come up with a way to study the mysterious effects that had been uncovered in recent experiments, including the D.D. Home experiment that you mentioned a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. So I want to read this section about the Philip experiment. In 1973, a group consisting of eight members of the Society of Psychical Research in Toronto decided to find out more about these mysterious effects. They wanted to find out first whether they could be produced in full light, second, whether a spirit medium was necessary, or if instead they could be generated by ordinary people, and third, if the force involved was produced by a disembodied spirit or instead was generated by the living participants in the circle. The group was an ordinary cross-section of the population, an accountant, an engineer, an industrial designer, a scientific research assistant, and four housewives. Keep in mind, this was written in 1973. None of them claims to be a medium. Psychical research is just one of their many interests. Their work had stated as early as the fall of 1972, for a year they met weekly for a couple of hours in a sustained attempt to summon up an apparition or ghost. Perhaps when it came it might be merely a collective hallucination. But for all they knew to the contrary, it might come as a materialized figure of ectoplasm or as of astral material of pure mental energy, if such things do exist. The point is that though by nature they were all skeptical and scientific, they were also truly open-minded. One could say that the group's point of view was that one cannot absolutely deny the existence of phenomena that one has not taken the trouble to look for. So that their effort would not be aimless and uncoordinated, they did not sit around in the casual hope that any passing spirit, if such there be, would choose to drop in on them. Instead, they decided to concentrate their thoughts as a group on a single character, Philip. It was essential to their purpose that Philip be a totally fictitious character, not merely a figment of the imagination, but clearly and obviously so, with a biography full of historical errors. Yeah, and did you notice what they mentioned there was a little bit of uh, what uh, Mario Truzzi called uh, pseudo-skepticism. <laughs> you're, yes. You're not actually bothering to see if this is untrue. You're just taking it at face value. Like, of course it's untrue. One could say that the group's point of view was that one cannot absolutely deny the existence of phenomena that one has not taken the trouble to look for. So, <laughs> like, do the work. And it should be. That's uh, the role of a of a good skeptic. And I'll uh, I'll give that to Joe Nickel, we, you know, one of our favorite folks there, who actually will go out and try to recreate it and uh, and see what kind of results he gets. But to sit there and not do anything and just say like, well, no, this is baloney. It has to be. Well, that's a little bit lazy, but but that's human nature as well. So anyway, already an interesting setup. This could be a reality show nowadays. It would be. So here's Philip's origin story or backstory that was tasked to a member of the group to come up with a little fictional slash non-fictional base that they can all start from and is a general overview to which details would be added later. And he would start to grow as a character because they all had to start from the same place and all agree about these details. And the more they could visualize this fictional person, 
and imagine a shared backstory with all the same details, the more real he could become, possibly. At least that was the goal of the experiment. So here's the summary of Philip's story, as summarized by one of the members of the group. Philip was an aristocratic Englishman living in the middle 1600s at the time of Oliver Cromwell. He had been a supporter of the king and was a Catholic. He was married to a beautiful but cold and frigid wife, Dorothea, the daughter of a neighboring nobleman. One day, when out riding on the boundaries of his estates, Philip came across a gypsy encampment and saw there a beautiful, dark-eyed, raven-haired gypsy girl, Margot, and fell instantly in love with her. He brought her back secretly to live in the gatehouse near the stables of Diddington Manor, his family home. For some time, he kept his love nest secret, but eventually, Dorothea, realizing he was keeping someone else there, found Margot and accused her of witchcraft and of stealing her husband. Philip was too scared of losing his reputation and his possessions to protest at the trial of Margot, and she was convicted of witchcraft and burned at the stake. Philip subsequently was stricken with remorse that he had not tried to defend Margot and used to pace the battlements of Diddington in despair. Finally, one morning his body was found at the foot of the battlements where he had cast himself in a fit of agony and remorse. Okay, there's one truth in that whole thing. Right. Diddington Manor or Hall, which I thought was a bit of a silly name, is real. <laughs> but the architectural features are imaginary. The battlement, it doesn't have battlements. It's still standing. No. And in fact, there's a school for autistic children there now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's called the Island Project, I think it is. But everything else about that's made up. Yeah. Diddington Hall was familiar to the person that they call Sue in the group right. who wrote this, which is a pseudonym at the time. It's now yeah. known that that was Margaret Sparrow. Her name is actually on the book, right, on the cover right. of the book. But they had called her that when they were doing the experiment. Some of these folks had stayed anonymous. And Margaret Sparrow is the former chairperson of Mensa Canada. Yeah. And she's the one that wrote up Philip's story for everyone. Mensa is a high IQ group for those of you that don't know about it. I, they've never asked me to join. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, we wouldn't even know how, where to get the uh, form to fill out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, these are not dim-witted people, okay? We're, yeah. we're talking brainiacs. Yeah. Uh, she was the chairperson of, the, of, <laughs> of all the other really smart people. <laughs> but one thing, Scott, did you notice... Well, you did because you read the book, too. Any of those folks out there have gone to a a haunted manor or uh, especially something historical. And it could be Loftus Hall or something like that. And you're there with a tour guide. This is the type of story they would tell you about the house that is haunted by the owner of the manor who threw himself off. Or or it could be a famous hotel in Southern California or the Midwest or New England where the distraught bride was jilted at the altar and threw herself off a balcony or met her end in the closet. This is the purposeful setup of something like this, which is the start of a ghost story. Right. And kind of broad, but also a good base story. It's like, well, if you believe in any of these ghost stories, here's a uh, pretty typical one. And, and it gets more and more detailed. So the next question is, where is this taking place? Well, this is happening at the Toronto Society for Psychical Research. Uh, this is straight out of the book, this description. It is a privately run association organized on a voluntary basis. The only criterion for membership is that anyone wishing to join must have an open mind on the various aspects of parapsychological research, a desire to further knowledge in the field, and want to find answers to some of the puzzling questions associated with the study of the subject. 
goes on to say the society itself does not have fixed views on any aspect of the subject. So the leader of the society at the time uh, was the aforementioned Dr. A.R. George Owen. He managed the Philip experiment. More on him in a second. The other co-manager was Dr. Joel Witten. Joel Lloyd Witten, actually. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he was a, a psychologist and author. He's uh, since passed away as well. I have most of these folks. He later wrote a book called Life Between Life, during mm-hmm. which he did a study of 30 participants who all agreed to be hypnotized by him in an attempt to identify choices they might have made in what is called the bardo. Mm. That's a state of transition between life and death, the life between life yeah. title. He theorized, if you believe any of this at all, that you make choices <laughs> in the bardo yeah. that affect your next life. Mm. Uh, this book, Life Between Life, was co-authored by a journalist whom he asked to help him with it, a man that longtime listeners of the show will be familiar with, Joe Fisher, the author mm-hmm. of Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, which we have done a series on uh, that Forrest just mentioned a minute ago. Yeah. Uh, you should hear it if you haven't, as well as the Vertical Plane series. They all have a lot in common with what we're talking about here, even though this predates both of those. Yeah, it's an EIC, everything is connected, strange, the ghostly bedfellows. There's some interesting overtones and and, uh, things that rhyme. It's not exactly the same, but like, you'll recognize this. And that's what another thing that we found fun and uh, real head scratchers is that, is there some overriding pattern, the rules perhaps? Why are these things happening like this? Yes. Why can it be more? That's my question. And that's a really good question. There's a specific nature to everything that happens. And some folks would say, well, oh, those constraints are telling you how real or unreal this Mm -hmm. is. But what you see, what you witness when you're in a group and you have other people around and the kinds of things that you see when you're alone, those things are different. The the definitions are different of those things and those experiences and the, the double take that you do about something that you just aren't sure what it was yeah. and there's no one there to talk about it. So then right. do you go and tell folks? I don't know. Right. The environments you see them in, those seem to define what you're seeing and what you're reacting to. Again, coming back to Skinwalker Ranch, certain things mm-hmm. happen there. It's the post digger in a tree. For me at the beach, it was this quiet thing hovering over me in this room with these folks doing this experiment it was something completely different. Right, right. Well, I'll just mention here uh, another tie-in to something that's similar, but way more extreme, and that one was scary, is the Bell Witch. Yes. So in regards to the Bell Witch story, we got an email way back when, uh, I think 2017, from a listener who's, uh, I won't mention their name, but they're very knowledgeable about these types of uh, thought forms and did a lot of research on the occult and neo-paganism and with these concepts and asked us, like, have you thought about, at least in the case of the Bell Witch, the idea or concept of the egregore, a thought form or collective group mind being, something that is autonomous, made up of psychic energy that is uh, influenced by the thoughts of a group of people. And this person goes on to say, it's also gained traction in some modern witchcraft practices as an entity that the creator makes and then feeds quote-unquote, energetically to be able to do specific tasks, much like the golem, but without a physical body. There is also some discussion about what happens after the death of the creator, or if the egregore is accidentally overfed, quote-unquote again, that they don't get fat, they will either keep doing their thing or gain a degree of sentience slash independence, which means they could run amok. 
yes. which is a scary thing. And it's like, oh my God, if we create Philip, is he just going to say like, enough of you chumps, I'm off to cause some havoc here. Right. Like in the, uh, the, the Gola movie with Roddy McDowell, where <laughs> it just, it kind of becomes unstoppable. And so are you playing with fire? Well, I didn't start off to get that sense here, but I do wonder about that. What are you meddling with? Yeah. Don't want to do any spoilers, but it's similar to the plot of Ex Machina and the idea of uh, Frankenstein, really, the whole idea of creating this thing that gets out of control. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's briefly go over the makeup of the group that conducted the Philip experiment. First, we have Dr. Owen's wife, Iris M. Owen, who was also the person that wrote the book, all the passages that we've been reading. Those are primarily written by her, some written mm -hmm. by Margaret Sparrow, whose pseudonym is Sue in the book, but both uh, women that wrote the book. Iris Owen was a former World War II radio intercept officer in England. There was also, as we said, the former chairperson of Mensa from Canada, Margaret Sparrow. Her pseudonym was Sue, as I just said. She's the one who crafted the narrative of the background right. for Philip. Uh, there was a gentleman known today, uh, as far as we know, I don't know if his name has been, and this has been a while back, so some of these folks have come out. So we, if, they, if they've come out with their real names, I'm not sure about all of them, but... I appreciate the approach or the attempt to uh, make this as scientifically credible as possible. That's the aim here because it is overseen by actual real scientists. Yeah. They can give a lot of credit to uh, Joseph B. Rhine from Duke University who uh, pioneered a lot of this research and made it more acceptable, let's say, to the mainstream uh, scientific community. And so here what they say is that, well, you can find out these names if you are professionally interested. Right. Uh, we're not just going to dox them just because you're curious and you want to go send them goofy letters now and harass right. them. It's like, right. because here's the thing is that these are real people. This is a real study. If you have a professional interest, let us know. We'll tell you their name. So that's kind of how it's set up here. Right. Again, coming back around, we had Iris Owen, the, the wife of Dr. Owen. We had uh, Margaret Sparrow. Then we have Andy H., who was an industrial designer mm -hmm. at the time. His wife, Lorne. We also had a heating engineer named Al Peacock, an accountant named Bernice M., and a bookkeeper named Dorothy O'Donnell. And then the youngest member of the group was a sociology student named Sidney Kay, who the group was very fond of. Who's a They coach. teased a lot, but out of love. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it was interesting as Forrest and I were rooting around looking for research on this. Al Peacock, his son had made a posting on YouTube and a comment uh, yeah. about, hey, my dad was there. This stuff was real. He was very adamant about that. He is now uh, like our age, Al's son, I would mm -hmm. say, Stevie Peacock. We tried to track him down, but couldn't. He hadn't posted on uh, after that comment for five or six years on YouTube. No, but. we don't really know if it's him, but uh, I, I do love yeah. the one of the, like it's a counter uh, posts. It's like, no, it's not. You're not real. You lied. Yeah. And like, okay, maybe he did, or maybe that's not a real person, but like just being Al Peacock, you know, the son of Al Peacock, it's like, uh, no, I, I didn't. I yeah, don't probably know. Me, but, uh, yeah. So coming back around to the supervisor of the group, that would be Dr. Owens. And the actual group is not around anymore, but there's another mm -hmm. one now called the Survival Research Institute of Canada, the SRIC. That's the holder of most of the records on the Owens, and it has a bio page for them right on their website. So we're just going to read that bio really quick regarding... Dr. Owen, a mathematician, geneticist, and university lecturer, ARG, uh, the G is for George Owen, together with his wife, Iris M. Owen, a World War II radio intercept officer, nurse, and parapsychology instructor, made valuable contributions to the literature on poltergeists and psychokinesis, especially through their table-tilting experiments in Toronto during the 1970s that involved the creation of an imaginary ghost named Philip. 
The Owens' main interest in parapsychology was physical phenomena. Through their personal investigation of spontaneous phenomena and poltergeist outbreaks and their attempts to replicate spiritualist table-tilting phenomena in the Philip Sitter group, they became convinced of the reality of some physical psychic phenomena, including psychokinesis. In Canada, the Owens' parapsychological research was documented largely in the New Horizons Journal and a series of privately circulated occasional papers. Canada's, quote, master gatherer, anthologist John Robert Colombo, who was a friend of the Owens, has kindly permitted the Survival Research Institute of Canada to digitize and make available for research purposes only his 1999 tribute titled Conjuring Up the Owens, which mm. is a, a great paper. I'm not reproducing that here. Mm -hmm. But uh, we'll have a link to it if you want to go read more about their background. But that tells you a little bit about them being in the driver's seat on this uh, particular experiment. Right. So what was the goal of the experiment? We've said it a few times now. They hope to achieve manifesting and the apparition of a fictional deceased man named Philip Eilesford, A-Y-L-E-S-F-O-R-D. Group gets together. They're going to meet, I believe it was once a week for yeah. a long time, and uh, it was over a year that they had been meeting and nothing was happening, and they were getting discouraged. What I noticed here, you know, when you when you read this and, and their methodology is that they try to be as consistent as possible. So it's like meet at the same time. They start off with, you know, just for a few hours, but try to meet around the same time each week. And they started off for a long time, I think, first with a long meditative session, I think. Yes. And they were trying to, you know, kind of <laughs> quiet the mind, get in the mood, and think about this character for a long time. And then as they got more comfortable, and again, this is a key to remember as you as you as we go on presenting the story, they also became more of a social group, more friendly, got to know right. each other, loosened up a lot. Right. Just think about any other club that you go do. You go play bridge. You go uh, Pokemon hunting. I don't know what people do anymore. I've not been out in several years uh, for anything social. Uh, you know, you do these things uh, once a week. You get to know these folks. Yeah. Uh, poker, whatever your deal is. And you start to form a group, which is essential in uh, the formation or the outcome of this experiment. And here, what you have is that they start off this way and then they added another meditative session to the, the couple hour meetings or whatever both because you start to get more focused and they started to realize like, well, okay, maybe we should start to, you know, first you get the vibes and then you tell us, uh, everybody goes around. It's like, well, what did you, what did you feel? And then an interesting thing happened. People would say like, well, I think Philip is trying to communicate this idea to me. Yes. And I think Philip is appearing to me. And again, they know this is part of the imagination, but you start to, uh, I guess your imagination starts to run away with you a little. And, th and that's fine. But what they were saying is like, look, this can't be an individual connection between just Philip and you, right. Al or whoever. We need this to be a group thing. If anything's going to happen, if Al's going to communicate with us, if he's going to appear in the circle in the center of our circle, it has to be seen by everybody, not just right. once like, well, I'm apparently, uh, you know, he, he just likes me. So uh, Phil and I are going to go off and uh, have a chat. You folks uh, go on about your business. It has to be a group thing because this is not just for personal growth or spirituality. It's meant to be tracked. It's still an experiment. So after a while of not getting good results, they decided that they needed to change course. And one of the things that they wanted to do was go back and look at what earlier experiments had done and had success with and get into the mm -hmm. more traditional sense of a seance. 
focusing mm-hmm. more on the meditation, on uh, dimming the lights a little, setting a mood, right. and also opening their minds up even more. And no sooner did they start doing this that they started to have reactions through the table, including actual what they call rapping or a knocking on the table. <laughs> knocking is big. Knocking the is Fox big. The Fox sisters, everybody, the Bang sisters, everybody's knocking, rapping, dropping apples. It's just a, they're, they're, I'm making, uh, I'm being facetious, but this is another thing that I walked away with, not to derail you, but like, we all think like, oh, it's a ghost, like who's, you know, made out of mist. And then somehow they're trying to, they're banging on the, uh, the siding. Yes. And that's the easiest thing for us to wrap our heads around. But I don't think that that's what's happening. There's another aspect of physics that is making rapping sounds, knocking. Yes, right. That freaked me out. That's definitely something. So that's the point at which they're like, okay, well, we're getting these actual sounds. This is psychokinesis. So Mm -hmm. that, of course, begs the question, what is psychokinesis? Psychokinesis, also known as mind over matter, is the purported ability to move or influence objects with the power of the mind alone. It was first coined by American author Henry Holt in his Mm -hmm. 1914 book, On the Cosmic Relations. And it was popularized by the spiritualist movement that we mentioned earlier of the late 19th and early 20th century, which we've discussed extensively over the Mm -hmm. years on the show. Now, the idea of psychokinesis is considered by many to be pseudoscience, but this derogatory label really just means that it's difficult to apply the scientific method to a study of it. It's thought to be an invisible force that influences matter without physical contact or mechanical intervention. Examples include telekinesis, levitation, and biokinesis, which refers to the biological manipulation of living things, such as plants or animals, which can be thought of as faith healing, by the way. Uh, At the root of tonight's episode, though, we come down to a fundamental question about it. If psychokinesis is even possible, is it a paranormal phenomenon? Or is it a natural phenomenon occurring during a focused state of heightened awareness among highly attuned individuals? Or is it something that anybody can learn to do? Right. And now we're at another interesting junction because uh, I see this as uh, (laughs) roadblocks and levels of belief and logic in that geez, I guess you and I have witnessed it a little bit, not fully where it's undeniable, but something, the physics didn't make sense. And that's where yeah. I've, that's my term for this kind of stuff. Where yeah. a few times now, since we've been doing this show, I've noticed that something happened, popped out of a bottle, fell off the table, you know, that uh, the iPad falling off the railing, Yeah, where it's mostly centered on the six inches of, of wood there, for the for the smaller iPad, and it just kind of flops over onto its face, perfectly fine on a slate. Oh, blue flagstone, Pennsylvania blue there, flagstone, Pennsylvania blue yeah, flagstone, porch, yeah. uh, without a scratch. But it flopped over while we're standing there, and to me, the physics did not make sense for that. And so you come across these kind of things, and again, it, it didn't fly across the room, but other people have witnessed very sober uh, individuals and. Uh, right-thinking people, uh, where things flew off the shelf. Yes. And it wasn't tied to a fishing line. There was no trick line. It it wasn't a gust of wind. It's like, that's impossible. So these things happen. So then there's two ways to think about it. Is that some kind of angry spirit? Are they trying to get your attention? Or if you're going to go that way, that it did happen and you did see it, and it wasn't a physical uh, kind of thing that you just didn't witness, could it be the energy, the psychic energy, of a younger person who is emotionally troubled or under tumult, let's say. And with them, there's this uh, invisible, uh, you know, Tasmanian devil whirlwind 
of energy that can pull things, knock things over, knock pictures off walls, off mantelpieces, this and that. That's a more popular and current theory for people who are willing to believe that that is possible. But that is still amazing that that can happen. Yeah. Or it's impossible and people are just making this up until you see it yourself. Right, which is always the first thing that people think when they, until they see it themselves, literally, they think, oh, well, this didn't happen. This is just an exaggeration. Mm -hmm. And even I'm doing that. When I'm reading this book, I'm just like, I don't know about this. They actually acknowledge that in the book themselves. They're like, we know this is hard to believe, but hey, we had the sounds, we recorded the sounds. And they realize that something's happening, but they themselves aren't sure what it is. They know consciously that they're not faking this, you know, if they're all to be trusted, but this is happening. And so if they're all being honest and no one's pushing the planchette, as you say, if no one's doing this, is it being done subconsciously? Right. That is one theory. If they are telling the truth and this is happening, and and here's the other aspect of human behavior is that you and I, I know we, we, as uh, credulous uh, as we are, we would rather have been there to see it ourselves. Right. You know what I'm saying? You still need to be there. You still need to, it's still hard to take people's word for this. So, and just to experience the phenomenon, like what did it sound like? What does it feel like when you have your hand on this table and it's doing that? But again, the other part where the, the theory branches off is that, is this an existential force? Is this a, uh, again, something outside of them? Or are they doing it and they just don't know it? And when my dad and I are preparing for the zombie apocalypse, we're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, back to the show. Well, this is the thing, and this is something I came across during this research that we were doing for this episode. There's a lot of, in the study of these things, and table tilting, and things flying around, and telekinesis, and all of that. And you go to the telekinesis uh, Wikipedia page, for example... And one of the first things they try to put as high up the page as they can now is the word mm-hmm. pseudoscience. This is pseudoscience. Oh, well, we know who's doing that. Yeah, now. we do. And we <laughs> talked about that, right? What's the name of that group? I can't it's remember. It's the GSOW group, the Guerrilla Skeptics of Wikipedia, right. which we are fine with if they are actually correcting mistakes that uh, have been misreported or asking for citations where it's needed. The coloring of this, though, is, uh, or the omitting, I don't like to be censored. I, we, again, I, we've talked about that in, yeah. uh, I think, mostly part two of our Missing 411 series, that that's fine, but I think I'm intelligent enough, and I think most of us are listening, that we can make up our own minds, so correct it, but don't obscure it from view just because you think it, it shouldn't matter. So I have a little problem with that. Yeah. But again, uh, if you could find a factual error, yes, point that out. But uh, but just to label this, uh, yeah. Well, this is what I want to come around to is this idea, oh, all right, well, telekinesis, psychokinesis, whatever kinesis, all of these, that's pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. This is a waste of time. So is this table tilting, all this kind of stuff. Right, right. And then I was like looking at the research, and I can't remember which researcher it was now, but it was, you go down so many uh, rabbit holes, you don't, you don't <laughs> yes. remember which thing you read where. But there was somebody who was just like, well, yeah, if these things are happening, I think these are subjected to... Um, the fifth force. Uh. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. What's the fifth force? And this was a suggestion of another kind of force that is hard to identify. And then the next thing I thought of, of course, was dark matter. The physicists everywhere are telling exactly, us that dark matters yeah. all throughout the universe. We can't see it. It's most of the universe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we can't see it, but we know it's there. 
okay, so that's not pseudoscience, that thing that we know's there that we can't right. see. And then here, listen, I want to listen to this Wikipedia page on Fifth Force. I'm just mm-hmm. going to read this flat out because I didn't have time to summarize it. In sure. physics, there are four observed fundamental interactions, also known as fundamental forces, that form the basis of all known interactions in nature. Gravitational, electromagnetic, strong nuclear, and weak nuclear forces. Mm-hmm. Some speculative theories have proposed a fifth force to explain various anomalous observations that do not fit existing theories. The characteristics of this fifth force depend on the hypothesis being advanced. Many postulative force roughly the strength of gravity, i.e. it is much weaker than electromagnetism or the nuclear forces, with a range of anywhere from less than a millimeter to cosmological scales. The search for a fifth force has increased in recent decades due to two discoveries in cosmology, which are not explained by current theories. It has been discovered that most of the mass of the universe is accounted for by an unknown form of matter called dark matter. Most physicists believe that dark matter consists of new, undiscovered, subatomic particles. But some believe that it could be related to an unknown fundamental force. Second, it has recently been discovered that the expansion of the universe is accelerating, which has been attributed to a form of energy called dark energy. Some physicists speculate that a form of dark energy called quintessence could be a fifth force. Just a little bit more and I'll be done Mm -hmm. here. A new (laughs) fundamental force might be difficult to test. Gravity, for example, is such a weak force that the gravitational interaction between two objects is only significant when at least one of them has a great mass. Therefore, it takes very sensitive equipment to measure gravitational interactions between objects that are small compared to the Earth. A new or fifth fundamental force might similarly be weak and therefore difficult to detect. I'm just going to stop there. You can go read that whole page. You know Mm. what word doesn't appear on this entire Wikipedia page? Yeah. Pseudoscience. What is the difference here? This is a thing we think. We can't prove it. We haven't seen it. We don't know how to measure it. Okay, so that's not pseudoscience, but telekinesis is. Yeah. The definitions for these two things <laughs> are very similar. And we've got people over here saying, you know what? We've seen this. We've seen these steps yeah. and we've reproduced it enough. And I know the physicist is going to get mad. We're going to get lots of emails yeah. and I love them because I love physics. Yeah. I love yeah, all this stuff. But sure. my point is it's a one-sided thing with the pseudoscience thing. This whole page, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I hope dark matter is real. Every day I have a whole physics thing in my little Apple News thing. It comes up and they're like, is it oh, real? Yeah. Does it exist? Yeah. Nothing exists? Yeah. We don't have any idea what it is. Why isn't that pseudoscience? Well, because our guesses, we're more educated about our guesses. And it's like, well, I don't know. Yeah. It just it, it rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> Here's the other thing is that it's outside of the body, right? We don't tend yeah. to trust anything coming. Well, look, insert your own joke. Anything coming outside of uh, our human being physicality. Yeah. We don't respect what our own brains can do a lot of the time. Right. Unless it's your own personal thing. And then I think. Then, of course, as I was saying earlier, you think you're right and everyone else is wrong. But here's the deal is that most of our existence is guided and influenced and operated by unseen forces that we can't see directly like a black hole because that's impossible to see. The light does not escape it. But you, and like with everything else, with gravity, you can see its effect, and that's how we measure it. We right. measure the effect of an invisible force, right. as you can see a book fly off the shelf. Right. Well, the other thing is that, uh, that and again, I, I could be uh, wrong about uh, the actual calculations, but out of the, uh, the weak force, the strong force, the uh, gravitational force, if any of that was off by, it's something like 1% or less than 1%, 
we would cease to exist. We would not have existed in the first place. Right. It's all such a perfect balance in harmony to a degree. Yes, the universe is violent. That's uh, things explode. But if all of that was not operating in such a specific balance, none of this would be happening. And so that's pretty miraculous. Why, yeah, why is that not pseudoscience? Is that uh, you're claiming that? Well, we'll prove it. Well, you, you can prove it with math. So as to your point, everything else that's happening that is more of the mind, that is more scoffable. <laughs> it is easy yes. to make fun of. Because, again, as, uh, as Laurie Williams would say, it's, it's Miss Minerva in the mind-reading tent with the crystal ball. Yes, that's obviously low-hanging fruit you can make fun of. There's a lot of characters on TV shilling people for money, and there have been always, with dubious claims and essentially stealing people's money or just gaining attention or this and that or whatever their, their uh, jam is. And uh, they are true charlatans, but it, does that make the whole phenomenon not exist or pseudo or all chicanery? Well, I don't think that that's logical, is that uh, you may have a, maybe just a few cases, as we always say, just has to be one case. Or I believe as the father of American psychology said, uh, William James, to disprove the fact that uh, all crows are black, you only need one white crow. That's a really terrible uh, paraphrasing of that. But you get the idea, is that yeah, uh, yeah. you just need one thing to be true for the possibility of it all being true or just true in general. So everything's guided by this invisible force, but we prefer it to be outside of ourselves. Anything psychic or psychokinesis, or as you said uh, back then in the book, the term back then was PK right. for a shortening there. People don't want to believe that because uh, we are at once really pompous and with a lot of hubris. And at the same time, we view ourselves very lowly. Yes. Probably based on our actions. So uh, we prefer that to be a cosmic in its force. But why can't it all be connected? The cosmic force and the force within us, we're essentially, this is another thing that'll blow your mind is that our components, our atoms and molecules are, as we all know, what coming from an exploding star and in roughly the same proportion as what's found out in the cosmos. I should probably clarify. I know there's aspects of dark energy that have been mm -hmm. proven, I think, but by the same token, I, I'm routinely reading things that are suggesting that they're not sure it exists at all. That's another great point is that they don't all agree. Right, uh, right. Know, it's not, we didn't all just vote on it. And uh, But if we're, we're we do that and the stuff that we're talking about, we're silly and pseudo. this is pseudoscience yeah. and it yeah. should be dismissed. I guess then it's all that speculative nature. The minute that we get a little bit speculative in the kinds of things that we mm -hmm. talk about, we get a label slapped on us. Whereas with them, it's okay to be like, well, we don't really know what this is. We know it's out there, but we yeah. can't see it. We don't know where it's coming from. Right. But if we say that exact same thing, <laughs> we're like, well, you did. I, uh, let's see it in a reproducible experiment in this environment and show me on. Right. This is pseudoscience. And it's like, okay, yeah. it seems like we're following the same set of rules for two different things here. And yours well, is okay and mine's not. <laughs> But yeah, that's again, fine. it's people, uh, the scientific community poo-pooed Michael Faraday, even though he's uh, come up with some pretty brilliant inventions that rule our lives today. Yeah, we wouldn't have electric motors without him. Yeah, he was uh, largely Tesla. unschooled. Yeah. Here's the thing. He didn't have the math. Yeah, he, he couldn't get past uh, trigonometry, I think, or algebra. Faraday was, that was his highest ability. Yeah, and he was embarrassed by it because they're putting you down. It's like, well, prove it then. It's like, yeah. well, here's my point. If this, uh, you know, if I compress gas in this glass tube 
and then you break the glass and it gets colder is not the effect enough. Right. It's like, well, it'd be nice to have the math because then you can extrapolate that and, and uh, invent other things. Right. Uh, like the refrigerator using compressed Freon or whatever. But they don't take you seriously until you have the math. And that is what I think astronomy and uh, cosmology and theoretical physics has going for it because you can do the math. And so, as a, a, again, that's what uh, Michio Kaku, uh, professor, will, will say, is that we can uh, have mathematical models. It doesn't prove you cannot make or tap into these different dimensions with the math, but you can prove that it's possible. And that's the theoretical part of it. So that's why you get people spending all that time, but nobody really wants to spend that much time here, except for the parapsychologists which right. I applaud them for, is like, yes. hey, something's going on. And here's the other thing is that what we've learned I thought was fascinating. You see some presenting of these Russian mediums and uh, PK adepts who can move things, and we all certainly have heard of the names, but the Russians, being materialists, view it differently. We were talking about this uh, with remote viewing, take a drink, <laughs> in that they're not hung up on the woo-woo. They right. say, hey, this is something's happening here. Let's see what this is about. Whereas we're hung up on the concepts and the spiritual implications, and uh, we don't believe this and that, and that's who we, until they start doing it. It's like, well, we better keep up. Yeah. Let's us uh, start looking into this now because they're taking it seriously. And if they find something, then they have a hedge against us. We're left holding the short end of the stick. So there you go. It's ridiculous. Well, like podcasting was ridiculous until people started making a lot of money at it. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's, uh, you can make fun of it, but people take it a little more seriously. Excellent point. Excellent point. And then everybody got into podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because, uh, well, here's the other thing. A.R.G. Owen yeah. is a mathematician. That's right. And, you know, that's taken a huge risk with your own career, especially back then. And uh, you're still seeing that it's a little bit, uh, I don't know, you're still taking a risk, I think, of putting your, uh, your hat in this kind of ring with your fellow uh, scientists. But we also mentioned this as well. This is something that's mentioned by Russell Targ is that all the physicists now are getting into consciousness studies. Right. As the next era to tap into that there might be some viable ground to make a connection and leaps forward. What was thought as, uh, as woo-woo consciousness is now being embraced by certain aspects of the uh, mainstream scientific community. Right. So then they can go through all those Wikipedia pages and now they can delete the word <laughs> pseudoscience from anything that's connected to that because now they're taking it seriously. Yeah. It's just, again, Oops, it's go just, back, uh, change that page, take the label off. Yeah. Because now, because <laughs> now the important people are looking at it. It's human silliness. And if I had one uh, superpower trait, it would be to flick somebody's hat off because... Yeah. <laughs> uh, how can you deny that? And nothing sillier than a man chasing his hat. I keep having this dream where my hat blew off. Did you chase after it? No. Why? It's nothing sillier than a man chasing after his hat. <laughs> well, so when these guys, when they started this experiment, they were faced with an interesting problem here. They're they right. coming around. They want to make this experiment, but they don't know anything about Conjuring. They And the Conjuring, right. the movie, hasn't come out yet, and, and the, the Warrens <laughs> right. aren't in business yet. So they're not sitting no. around in the in the psychical research facility with a grimoire trying to figure mm -hmm. out, you know, how what kind of pentagram they need to put on the floor with salt. No, different approach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a different approach to be sure. They also don't want to get in trouble because the other thing is they do, based on what I could tell in the book, they were taking it seriously. The idea of maybe not doing it quite right might be a mistake. 
not that they were necessarily fearing evil or no, but they were taking the responsibility of what they were trying to do. Yeah, seriously, trying to be effective and and reproducible in a scientific way as much as they right. could be, but also trying to corral what it was that they were trying to get to happen. Well, you're wondering because, again, that's the scientific thing is that you don't try a hundred different things willy-nilly. Right. You try this. Does this work? Okay. Right. Uh, we got some effect. Let's add this now. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't make much sense to be trying a bunch of different things as uh, if you've ever tried to fix something and uh, you're just going at it kind of like a kook and then you're not keeping track of what you've done and then it starts working again. Like, well, what'd you do? Like, I don't know. I tried a bunch of different things. I I didn't keep track of that. And so you don't know what combinations either fixed it or broke it. So here, where they're trying to be scientific, it's like, let's try this methodology. It's very simple. One thing that they talk about is the idea from the psychic medium, uh, Jan Murta, who was able to control a mobile, right? Like a, yes. uh, a hand a spinning a piece of art or over your baby's crib, yeah. the mobile or something, I think with a feather. And that he was able to spin it, get it rotating one way under a glass and then get it to go the other way and stop on command. Yes. And he's able to affect it. And here's what I found interesting is that rather than using this technique, and we all saw this, like I'm trying to will my mind and you're rubbing your temples and yeah. uh, you're trying to beam thought energy to this thing. And there is an effect that occurs with that, that uh, J.B. Ryan found in that. Yes, a measurable effect. And the, the re- in the receiver's brain. Brain yeah. waves. Yeah. When that happens in your gray matter, which is like any other sensory thing that you would see or smell or something that gets your attention, that can also get your attention. So there is an effect. But he didn't use that brain power to move the mobile. The technique he did was rather than trying to just strain and will until you get a headache, he used intention instead. In his mind, he set the intention of moving that thing. And I found that fascinating. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm going to move it, I'm going to move it. It's like, no, I intend to move this. And that's what he focused on and not strongly willing it. Yeah. And that had more effect. So that's what we're talking about here is technique and and actually the mechanics of getting this to work. So as you said, they tried just meditating for a long time and then at another session and then tried to focus that and nothing was really happening. And it's like, hey, well, what about the old-timey seances? Exactly. With singing of hymns, telling of jokes, playing music, singing, like we said, and just generally socializing because these are more social events. Maybe that will work. It's Again, so much of this is to me is like fishing. Yes. Like ghost hunting, and it's like fishing. You try different lures. You try different fishing holes. You try different techniques if one isn't working. And it may, uh, there may be many days where you don't get a nibble and then something like this happens. So after all the time they spent where they weren't getting results, I want to read this little passage from the Mm -hmm. book. It was at this time that Iris, who uh, wrote the book, who had been studying literature on the subject of psychodynamics, came across the work of Seabrook Smith, D.W. Hunt, and K.J. Batchelder, which had been carried out in England in 1960 and reported in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's this one passage from the book that we thought was interesting. Several researchers had already suggested that the ability to produce psychokinetic phenomena was not a mystical quality possessed only by a number of people called mediums, but rather a skill which could be acquired by almost anyone. The determining factor seemed to be the mental disposition. Doubt and suspicion hinder the production of the phenomenon. That's really important. Mm -hmm. Doubt and suspicion. This is the more skeptical you are, the less likely this is to work for you. Doubt and suspicion hinder the production of the phenomenon. Belief and expectation heighten it. 
which is not yeah. what skeptics want to hear. By the way, I'm not assaulting skeptics here because I'm skeptical. No, no, right. they, please, please, uh, yes, yeah, stand down. A lot of times because, when we're talking uh, about skepticism, people <laughs> uh, seem to take it personally. We're, we're not coming after you here. What we're saying is they were operating from a belief that you have to believe for this to work right? based on prior experiments that had success. That was the point that the people that participated in those experiments got around to before something happened. Perhaps from a skeptical POV, not a debunking POV, the not the cynical POV, the, the, the healthy skepticism yes. POV is that uh, it's like what they always say about, well, you saw a ghost because you walked into this haunted place and you're there at three in the morning and you were expecting to see a ghost. So of course you saw something. And I think a lot of times that is happening, perhaps, right. is that your imagination is running away and there really isn't anything there. And that, but is that every time? I, I don't think so. But what they're saying is that the heightened expectation of a result, knocking, the table, lifting, tilting, uh, and in some cases, I also want to say it's not just tilting over. It's been documented, uh, especially with Colin Brooks Smith and uh, Kenneth Batcheldor. Yeah. Again, I, I have not yet, I haven't really searched for it, but uh, footage or anything uh, that the table actually levitated. And that's what they also claim it, it came off the floor. Right not just tipped over its side or onto one leg or scooted across the floor. This thing actually levitated. So uh, that's what they're claiming. But you're saying that this anticipation has a lot to do with it. And like I said, the perhaps you were saying like, well, you expected this thing to levitate. You were hoping for it. So it levitated. My point is, it's still levitated. Right. And I think that has something to do with it, is that you had a lot of expectation. You had the intention of experiencing this result that happened with a result that is still not uh, made up in yes. that whatever happened happened so like i said it's like yeah that is part of it i will agree that heightened expectation did increase the likelihood of a result and what i'm just saying is that the result is remarkable right and so what again coming back to this passage the group determined that instead of using the meditation techniques that they've been practicing for the past year i'm reading again from the book here mm -hmm. Bachelder and his associates recommended trying some of the methods that were used within the seance circles that were so prevalent in Victorian times and which allegedly had produced some unusual results. In the Victorian seance, the participants sat around in a relaxed and jolly atmosphere, singing songs and hymns, making jokes, and carrying on a conversation among themselves. These seances became very much social occasions. There were, however, features that our group decided to avoid. The sittings were often carried on in a dim light, sometimes even in total darkness. One member of the group was usually regarded as the medium and was made responsible for any phenomena that occurred. The other sitters were said to add their energy to his or hers since they were both male and female mediums. So they didn't want to do that. They liked to have the light yeah. on. They weren't trying to make anyone a medium. As far as right. they were concerned, none of them were mediums. So they left that part out when they were doing their work. Yeah. Here's another quoted section about when they first started to experience something different. One evening, during the third or fourth news session, the group felt a vibration within the tabletop, somewhat like a knock or rap. It is correct to say felt rather than heard, because the group was making a degree of noise at the moment, so the unexpected action within the table took them completely by surprise. They were not expecting anything of this nature, so nobody could say for sure whether they heard the vibration as a noise, although everyone felt the vibration. Mm -hmm. As the sitting proceeded, other raps came as if someone had struck the table a light blow. These knocks or raps became louder and louder until there was no doubt that they were heard by everyone in the group. 
each one of the group assured himself or herself that nobody was in any way either deliberately or inadvertently producing the raps which were proceeding from the top of the table. This development startled the group. Well, I'll bet they were startled because <laughs> here's two ways to look at it. Either you try it the first time out and you get some raps like, wow, we got uh, first time out, first thing happening, uh, we get some knocks. Yeah. Well, you were expecting it. I would say there's even more anticipation after a year of trying this and nothing really happens. Yeah, at this point, they're probably 13, 14 months right. in. And then you get a knock and it's like, well, on one hand, it's a long going experiment that they've dedicated themselves to, but also a social fun thing that they did once a week for a year over a year. Yes. And then now suddenly uh, you weren't expecting it. Like after that amount of time, you might be just doubting it. Like, well, this is kind of fun and we'll keep doing this. We're, we're in for a penny in for a pound. And then something happens. Yeah. And that's where we're at now. And here's the description of what happened after that. During these first sittings, the group members were somewhat nonplussed. They were not quite sure how to deal with this strange twist of their experiment, although they were aware of the possibility of the manifestation of this type of phenomena. While this speculation was going on aloud about the cause of the table wrappings, Dorothy exclaimed, I wonder if by chance Philip is doing this. Immediately, there came a very loud rap from the tabletop. So Philip had come though in a very different form from that which we had expected. The group quickly established a code. One rap meant yes, two raps meant no. We decided to adapt ourselves, at least temporarily, to the new situation. We would not lose sight of the fact that our original objective was to produce a visual image of Philip. We still wanted to see him, but no one should look a gift horse in the mouth. Here we had produced paranormal phenomena, unusual and remarkable. Here were the physical phenomena of the seance room, but produced in full light by non-psychic or mediumistic people and without a quote-unquote genuine spirit communicator. Ours, no real ghost, and real is in uh, quotations, he was a complete invention. It would be interesting to learn what he would have to say. The table used was an ordinary plastic top card table with folding wooden legs, strengthened at the corners by metal stays. The group started each session by sitting around this table. Each member would say, in turn, hello, Philip. Yeah, and so at this point, each member would in turn say, hello, Philip, and then they mm -hmm. started with these questions because now they have this code. So there's just, right. they go into all their backstory that they have flushed out so carefully. <laughs> Did you have your own regiment? Yes, yeah. one rap. Were you wounded in the fighting? Two raps, no. The questions mm -hmm. go on and on. Uh, uh, did you have musketeers? Yes. You fired ball and shot? Yes. Mm -hmm. Did you train your own men as spies? Yes. Many of them? No. Just bap, 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 bap. Mm -hmm. They're just getting all this information. Did you kill anyone during the war? Yes. Many men? No. More than 10? No. Less than 10? Yes. Yeah. So they're just starting to like, okay, now they're they're starting this conversation. It's like, you know, Force, you and I are always joking about and making too many references to Close Encounters <laughs> when they take over the conversation from with the UFO because right, that's a, they're right. giddy at this point. Well, and here's, here's what I would say is that maybe your mind is filling in the relevance of this. Yes. As opposed to another uh, thing. And, you know, and I, and I felt bad for this guy and I felt, uh, you know, one of my favorite shows ever 
Radio Lab, they got a lot of oh, yeah. crap, a lot of crap. About the flashlight test or whatever, Yes, the right? flashlight test, and yeah. people are just saying like, well, look, it's very simple. You had screwed enough, and it turns on, and it heats up, and the metal, blah, 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 and then it cools off, and then it turns off. It's like, well, I get that. But like I said, when it's one flash for yes, two for no, and the person is asking very specific questions, and it's answering correctly, and it's stuff that only family would know. And again, yeah, you know, we what we've learned, especially from like siren calls, can you trust what's communicating with you? That's answering very specific question of. Uh, it's like at some point, it's statistically very unlikely that this yeah. thing is just randomly answering questions that are relevant to what you're asking and correct. Yeah, is that some other thing that's posing ears as your folks? And we've had a lot of emails asking us like, well, I don't know what this thing is. Do I? Trust it. What was it? And it's like, I, the only thing you can do is trust your gut. Yeah. That's my advice. If, did it feel like this person that uh, passed on? Did it feel like them? Because we've also had a lot of emails and certainly our Halloween stories where something showed up and it was supposed to be this, but it, they it's knew an it imposter. wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. It was not. This was not what, what's going on, but this thing's playing a gag or has some other reasoning to it. So what I would say in the, uh, the radio lab case is that, yeah, that's not the show for this. They tried that. It's, it was a very touching story. Uh, and that has value in itself. And they, they got almost as many emails as we're going to get after my <laughs> rant about the fifth force and, uh, and oh, come on physics. Now. Yes. Uh, but, right. Well, Long story short is that I think to the guy that this happened to, he believed it was his parents and uh, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Yeah. I hope that he could not care less what people have to say about his flashlight trick. To him, that was a very touching and moving moment and a, a communication with the parents that he lost much too soon. There's some idea about the sheer fact that you're observing mm-hmm. an experiment affects the outcome of it. On a broader right. sense. And there's something to be said for the idea that it is what it means to you, like you said. Right. It's what you believe about it that matters right. in that moment, at least in a positive way, because obviously that can yeah, go yeah. negative too. Right. And so all of that stuff tempers it. But you do wonder a little bit, does everything have to be so linear? Can yeah. you redefine what it is in your perception of it after the fact? And maybe you right. can. from Kentucky, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. Now, the difference also, like with the vertical plane, is that whatever that phenomenon was that they were purportedly communicating with from the 1560s, I believe, or latter uh, 16th century, is that they did strike up a friendship with Lucas slash Thomas. And here's another interesting point. There were inconsistencies with that story as well. And here, they planted inconsistent items in the story, things that were seeming to me to be anachronistic as a control mechanism to see, yes. is this thing saying what we said, or is it getting it actually right? Well, there was actually that one case, actually, where they asked him, had he visited St. Petersburg, and he said yes. Yeah. And then the group later learned that they had not known at the time of the first question that St. Petersburg didn't exist in his time It was, Uh in fact, a swamp. Nevertheless, (laughs) when at a later date the question slipped in, did you visit St. Petersburg, the answer came again as yes. 
Yeah. And again, I'm reading or paraphrasing from the book here. They said there was a sense of fun about this decision as well as the determination to preserve the personality of Philip as they had created him and right. not as historical fact might dictate. In contrast to the siren call, which again got very personal, even possibly on a romantic bent, and you ask the, let's say, the phenomenon or spirit, as people who uh, are adepts uh, call it, and it gets something wrong. It's like, hey, that village was all wrong. Or that port city was like, hey, what do you want from me? All right, that was a long time ago. I don't know, uh, you know, I, I can't get everything right. Right. It's like you're on the stand. In the case of Lucas, of course, he's leaving messages supposedly on the uh, the ABC computer, the BBC computer, excuse me. And in this case, it's just one knock, two knocks. Yes. And they're getting the knocks. It's like, okay, that's pretty simple. There's really no way to judge, is this correct, uh, Elizabethan English? Is right. this historically accurate? Other than that they can ask questions. And they've put in some tripped up triggers to see if this thing will fall for it. And so, but what's going on here? Is it changing its mind? Is it influenced by us knowing the right answer or being unaware of the right answer at the time? And sometimes they would ask it questions where uh, the answers hadn't been predetermined, at least by them as a group. And as a result, also, Philip couldn't come up with an answer. And so when that happened, it either was like a really weak response or right. just like a scratching sound. Yeah. And at one point, Sid, who was the youngest in the group, the sociology student, made a joke and said, Philip, if you won't talk to us, we can send you away and get somebody else. <laughs> and everything stopped for a yeah. good period of time. And they had to go back and deconstruct why that happened. And when they right. went back and looked at the work done by Brooks, Smith, and Hunt mm -hmm. that we mentioned earlier, that was how they got this going in the first place, those researchers had said, it is absolutely necessary that everyone has a complete faith in their ability to produce phenomena. So any deliberate attempt on their part to end it would result in probably doing just that. And mm -hmm. that Sid's joke had disturbed the rapport of the group. And they agreed mm. they should never adopt a threatening tone again. You know, we all see the ghost shows, uh, and when they aren't getting results, they do the provoking. Right. And, like, you know, you, you know who your your favorite uh, ghost uh, <laughs> hunters are on TV. And some will say, well, I don't like to do this. I don't think it's right. It's like, you know, why would you go to your neighbor's house and scream at them? <laughs> like, you yeah. coward, come out here. Like, that's not, it's just rude. But it's a show. They, you want results, right? That's why you're watching. So it's like, well, we'll do a little provoking. And then some people, it seems to be uh, the de rigueur, that uh, they're going to get results. And so uh, they're not afraid. They're just going to shout and yell at them and challenge them. And if you believe that's happening, then... It often works. And one show I really liked that were actually at the Velisca house. And I believe it was Amy Bruni who they weren't getting any results, right? And, and a lot of people they do, and it's very scary and creepy. And she, I remember her saying, it's like, uh, I don't like to do this. And I believe that. She goes, I, I just think it's wrong, but we're not getting any interaction. And she does a little bit of a taunt. And then they immediately get a, an EVP of the F word. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. F you. And again, you can believe that or not, but... Like I said, sometimes it does spark some interaction in that realm, but maybe that's not what we're dealing with here. It's not an actual uh, ghost of the axe murder here. Here it's something else. It's a, a psyche or a consciousness perhaps, or just something that's being generated between themselves. And it's a little confusing, but as you said, once somebody breaks that chain, it's like the hands on the seance table. Once somebody lifts that off, you've broken the spell. 
Well, and that's a really good point. In terms of talking about them taking their hands off the table, of course, the next thing that's happening is people are trying to figure out if they're doing it subconsciously, because right. they're they're trying to conduct a good experiment here. I, I would like to read this passage. It would be mentioned again that it should be mentioned again that every possible precaution was taken to make sure none of the effects was produced by any member of the group, whether consciously or unconsciously. When such accidental actions did occur from time to time, they were immediately admitted by members of the group. For instance, if someone accidentally tapped a finger or knocked with a knee or felt he or she was pushing the table, he or she immediately said so. If another member thought someone in the group was causing an effect, they would also immediately say so. Mm. Over the weeks, the members trained themselves to keep their hands, legs, and feet very still, even when they were talking and laughing with great animation. The fact Mm. that the sessions took place in good light and that a number of visitors were able to observe for themselves and indeed to take part in the sessions also made it easier to believe that the phenomena were not caused by any individual in the group. This was something which the group members found very interesting. They had watched each other carefully and had been very aware of the possibilities of self-deception. Not once did any of their visitors or observers level any accusation of possible fraud against them. They had expected to be accused of self-deception or to have people say, you must somehow be doing it yourselves, either consciously or unconsciously, and they were prepared to answer such criticism and to detail the precautions they had taken. One session of seeing them for themselves seemed to convince the visitors that everything was as objective and controlled as it could be. Oh, here's another interesting story. This was, and this is the kind of stuff, I don't know, hard to prove this, but Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fascinating to think about. So one of the things that happens is they start to see Philip in the table, it seems like, when you read the book. It's mm-hmm. kind of the same thing. The table, in a weird way, yeah. is becoming Philip. It, it's his personality. And <laughs> they're talking to it. It's almost like a spastic pet dog in some cases. Like it's it gets kind well, of silly it's, it's with them. It's an embodiment. It is an embodiment of something that is uh, ethereal, you know. Right. So rather than staring at a crystal ball or a, a, a blob of mist, the table is it becomes the thing. And then I wouldn't say it's a haunted object. Because I don't think that's what's going on here, perhaps. But, yeah, it's a container, perhaps, for whatever this thing, this phenomenon is. Right. And so I I guess there was a point at which they were uh, trying to work with a new table. They were having problems. The tables were getting feeble from being Mm -hmm. destroyed at one point. (laughs) Legs were coming off of them and all this. And so they had this, uh, The one of the uh, persons who I think has since been, their name's been released, but I'm not sure which one it is because their pseudonym is A1. Mm-hmm. It said that A1 lives in a bachelor apartment that has a special locking device on his door to discourage burglars. When A1 left home that evening, Philip's table was in its usual place at the far end of his living room against the window with a chair against it. When A1 returned later that night, the chair was overturned and the table had traveled across the room and was in the hallway. There was no evidence of any break-in. A1 said that when leaving that evening, he had said to himself, quote, come on, Philip, you've got to go to your new home tonight, end quote. He then locked the door and gone out. It's impossible to say when the table actually made the movement or whether at the moment of A1's leaving or during the initial period when the group was trying to summon Philip. Quantum entanglement. Yeah. Yeah. Spooky action at a distance. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of crazy things going on. And Mm -hmm. the table got to the point where it was not just levitating. It would go up on two legs. Sometimes it would go up on one leg. Mm -hmm. So there are these two videos, uh, YouTube videos, that we'll have links to in the show notes. One of them, I think, is seven minutes. The other one's 11 or 12 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they are different, although they seem to be shot roughly the same time. And, And we do have, you can figure out which one is what if you do enough of the research, but it doesn't really matter. You can tell it's them. They're being recorded. At one point, they go into a television studio. Mm -hmm. So they switched to this newer table, and they had it upside down. 
And you can see this in the studio and it's on the floor with the legs up in the air. It doesn't even have folding legs as far as I can tell in that shot. I've only watched it like twice. Yeah, I think it, it, it might, but the, the camera's uh, zoomed in to the center of the table. In the wide shot, it looked like it had big, fat, square wooden legs to me. Right, like, right, right. That I didn't think were collapsible, but, but they might have been. How would they move it around if it wasn't? But they are, unless it started out in the studio, they don't really indicate that. But you can see that their hands are on the bottom side of it, flat on the surface, and then they're asking for answers to their questions, and they're getting a rapping sound, and the microphone moves down near the table, and you can hear it. Right. They're in a TV yeah. studio, and... and uh, uh, Iris is being interviewed at one point on the couch. Right. Uh, if this is uh, all in the same clip, and then uh, to hear it better, they they lower the boom mic, and you can hear ramping. It's right. like it's right in front of you. But again, people will say, "Well, there's some device that they're uh, triggering. It's got a servo motor." <laughs> like, right. You hear and and that's uh, again, if you don't think that any of this is real, then uh, you you can come up with some pretty elaborate, let's say, explanations yes. of uh, microcontrollers that they would have in 1970 to uh, to get this effect to happen. But, well, there you go. So it's being filmed in the studio. But the table is upside down. And to your point earlier, it's a very uh, social and jovial atmosphere. And I did see, you will see in the film that somebody starts tapping their fingers like they're kind of having fun. Yes. And then another hand goes over and, and, and kind of puts their hands like, well, don't do that. That could be confused. Right. With, right, uh, right, right. with tapping. So, right. uh, but we're all having fun here. Like, but... Again, it's like one of those things you try to avoid and cut out any uh, extraneous uh, feedback or evidence, you could say, like a, a haunted house investigation, right, overnight. You try yeah. to eliminate people coming in and all noises. Yeah, you know, creaks happen and stuff, but there shouldn't be anybody there. There's no heavy boot footsteps that should be happening. So in this case, they're in the studio because they're trying to prove it can happen anywhere. And it does pay off a little bit. It's not dramatic. The tape, you know, people want now, especially with uh, uh, all the James Wan movies, the table to fly up and uh, spiral across the stage and hit somebody in the face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it doesn't happen, but it is interesting that there is an effect. As the experiments continue, the other thing that they find is that their their personalities or the personality of the group are affecting the outcome of the experimental mm -hmm. results. So uh, one of these cases was when they are talking about Sue, who is actually uh, Margaret Sparrow. She was someone who didn't like the smell of cigarette smoke. And so when she was present, if they were to ask Philip the question, do you like smoking? The answer would be no. Yeah. However, there were sessions where some of them couldn't make it. So there'd be a session where someone wasn't there. When Margaret wasn't there and they would ask, or Sue wasn't there, that's the same person, and yes. they would ask, is it okay to smoke? Do you mind us smoking? It would be okay. Mm -hmm. There was another occasion where, and this, there's a lot of this too, where the table chased somebody. There, the table, <laughs> I'm going to read this section, literally chased Dorothy across the floor, leaving the rest of the group behind, helpless with laughter. Dorothy squeezed through the doorway, and the table got itself wedged in the doorway. Mm. Only two of the group were anywhere near it when this took place, and the table had escaped all hands. Hmm. And there's another another time someone's described where one of the legs is coming up off the floor, like the table's mm -hmm. being pushed right. up from underneath. Other times they're talking about, uh, they describe it differently. I can't remember where it is, but that it's it's on a thick carpet that I took to mean almost like a shag type yeah. carpet. Yeah, with it, it is the 70s, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's, it's not easy for it to slide across the room either, mm -hmm. even if all these people are participating in it. Sue was a former nurse for the British military, and uh, I, right. I can't remember which uh, which branch, but that might explain her 
not liking the smoke, but also the people in the session said it interfered uh, right. having smoke around. Like, again, it's the 70s. A lot of people were smoking back then. Like with incense, it's very much part of the spiritual practice. Uh, even in the Catholic Church, you can see this the swing of the uh, the frankincense going there, or right. just lighting of uh, incense for cedar and sage and uh, doing smudging. So smoke is a very prominent aspect, but it's also interfering with this with some folks. And that uh, because remember they they said that they saw some kind of haze. Some people reported a haze or a feeling of a breeze upon them. Yes, a breeze, specifically on command. Yeah. A breeze had passed through the room into mm -hmm. somebody's face, I believe. Yeah. And so that's interesting. And then the other thing was the changing personality of Philip. Right. And how it depended on who was present, which, of course, makes sense because they all created him. And, and so yeah. it had to have some sort of connection to their personalities and the uh, work that they had done trying to paint the picture of mm -hmm. who Philip was, which, and right. again... We come back, you get down into this road and you go just as far as they did. Imagine they're a year and a half in and they've been convincing themselves that this is a real person. They're probably lying to themselves about it at this yeah, point. Yeah. So now, and we're this far just into this part of this story. We're, we're sitting here talking about it like it's a yeah. person too, just in, from talking about it for a minute. And But it's not. So what is it? Again, we're coming back to the big question here. What yeah. are they interacting with, if you believe any of this at all, and that they're not hoaxing it, and that the table is is moving around? Yes, as you said, Forrest, there, there were plenty of people in the late 1800s and the early 1900s mm -hmm. that were charlatans that did things like this under the cover of darkness or they planted tricks or whatever because they could get money out of people to come participate in it. Right, the levitating trumpet, which is yes. which would be a cool, I got to get me one of those from an antique shop. It would be cool yes. for the background of uh, uh, my future home studio. But yeah, they would have different things and, and they would say like, well, the trumpet works best because, uh, you know, whatever, we can get that to levitate or rattle. It's like, Really? Are there certain items that work better? What is it about tables? Right. I think for some of the charlatans, and this is uh, the other point, is that, uh, I can't remember who, uh, ugh, again, this may be the Watsika story, was that... Which, by the way, was 100 years before this. Right, right. There, yes. Exactly. And, and there was a, a woman who was uh, very popular at the time, not Leonora Piper, I don't believe, but uh, somebody like that. And, and uh, of course, you do it in, in uh, total darkness, and again, that's that aids everybody because you don't know what she's doing, right? She's grabbing your wrists. Things are happening. Uh, as you said, uh, Houdini's ringing a bell with his toes. And here they said, let's eliminate that because, of course, we're just trying to show people that there could be an effect produced. But what they notice is that, well, really bright light, sometimes that didn't work as well. It's like ghost hunting during the day. Of course, you can do that, but you get better results at night. Same thing with fishing. It's like, yes. uh, so I've been out in a, in a rainy rowboat where my grandparents' place was, and uh, the fish just start biting. Yeah. Sometimes they're better than the others. Early morning or in the afternoon as before the sun sets and the, uh, and the bugs are out. Middle of the day, not so hungry. You know, you get better results, and so they're finding some things are tracking with this. If you change the stimulus, the results are different. But to me, as... Uh, we start to near the end here, at least for part one of what the heck is going on. I think it's much more mysterious in the fact that it is so subtle. You know what I'm saying? Like if you got some crazy, uh, 
message on the mirror and lipstick. Yes. Or, you know, things are lighting on fire. It's like, okay, that's a little different here. The fact that, uh, I guess, I think you would say this, the fact that it is not so dramatic, that it is more subtle, maybe tends to let some credibility to this. But it is strange and responsive. Yeah, there's because they're controlling that environment. They're maintaining a childlike wonder with it and the silliness and kind of playing yeah. with it. And it's playing back with them. So is it a situation of you get what you give? Here is something else that I thought was really fascinating as we wrap up part one here. For folks that have listened to the, for the past few months anyway, we recently did a series uh, called The Massacre at Duffy's Cut. And we had the brothers Watson, who were both doctors on, (laughs) Mm -hmm. to talk about the massacre at Duffy's Cut, which is a tragic story of death among immigrant Irish railroad workers that had uh, come over to work on a particular section of train track in Pennsylvania. It's a fascinating story. And it's got ghost stories wrapped up in it. But one of the things that happened was the Watson brothers had gone over to Ireland to bury a victim that they recovered from the site. Right. And while they were over there, I think there was three or maybe four people or three at least all had a dream that was the exact yes. same scary dream. Right. So he listened to this. This came from this actual experiment with Philip. This is a group that the, uh, the Philip experiment people had heard about. Um, And I want to read an excerpt here. One group of people we know who have been practicing meditation techniques for a period of three years and who meet regularly, thus creating the same type of rapport within the group as the Phillips sitters did, report that from time to time, in addition to experiencing group hallucinations when all Mm -hmm. the members are present, they have shared dreams, which are all identical in all details. This is somewhat different from a telepathic communication received during a dream when a thought might be transmitted or possibly a symbolic picture. These people actually all had the same dream and were able to write it down in their own homes. Upon subsequent comparison, the details were all in agreement. This experience seemed to be more explicable as a collective dream hallucination, and in view of their waking experiences, this appears the more plausible explanation. And see, this is where they're starting to put forth a theory. On the basis of the foregoing, it is possible that Philip might materialize in one of three forms. One, as a shared dream. Two, as a collective hallucination apparent only to the members sharing the experience. Or three, as a separate hallucinatory apparition, which mm-hmm. could be seen not only by all members of the group, but by others who are present. It is perfectly possible that he can manifest at different times in all three of these forms. So you can see they're still trying to work out how can we get to the next step? How can we right. get to an actual visualization? Right. And one of the comments that one of the uh, Phillips sitters made, mm-hmm. they said, I am led to the inescapable conclusion that PG, which is what they're calling uh, this type of interaction, mm-hmm. is real, not an hallucination, but something that can be photographed and tape recorded. It is not like automatic writing, where there is a direct muscular behavior required to produce the phenomenon. PG is somehow produced by the brain. Yeah, uh, fascinating. But again, uh, we mentioned this earlier, the theory or at least the hypothesis of people using the Ouija board, and they are subconsciously moving it with undetectable muscle movements. Yes. Uh, unknowable to them is that they don't think they're moving it. It's like, I'm, you're moving that? I'm not moving it. But they're they're actually subconsciously doing it to a an answer of which they know, right? Yeah. So it's like you're asking, it's like, what did my, you know, what did great grandma call me as a pet name? Right. And it knows. Well, right. you know that. And where I think it gets weirder is in the stories where people claim that it predicted the future, that nobody knows. Or maybe 
we all have that ability to predict the future and that psychic ability. It's just that the uh, the Ouija board is a is a radio, much like the table is Philip's radio. You know what I'm saying? It's right. an amplification or an embodiment of this thing. And through that, you're communicating with the phenomenon, which just resides in our own psyches, in our own right. subconscious, which is very powerful. But that's also, we talk about Watsika, it's like, in the case of the Watsika wonder and the researchers, scientists of the time, the, the psychologists and investigators like Dr. Richard Hodgson, they thought that there was a genuine phenomenon that is possibly connected to those who have passed. And then some just said, well, you're, you're tapping in to a psychic hotline, let's say, to recap what we said earlier. And they varied in belief based on their personal, their very personal experiences. And William James was convinced he was talking to a loved one. That has a strong pull on you to yeah. sway your belief. Right. Now, he he believed it was real, but somehow information about a past loved one was coming through to him, and it, it rang true. Richard Hodgson got wrapped up in it much too much, perhaps like Joe Fisher. Joe Fisher wrote uh, The Siren Call of the, the Hunger Ghosts. The Siren Ghost. Call yeah. of the Hunger Ghosts. And also co-wrote the book with the psychologist from this experiment <laughs> yeah. later. And Joe right. sadly committed suicide after Siren Call was published. Yeah. yeah. And Richard Hodgson, and I think that was with Lenora Piper, he became so reliant on information about his fiance that he wasted away. It undone him, and that can happen. And that's the the danger of this, I think, is when you start to th believe that it is giving you answers. And in this case, thankfully, no one's getting that deep. It's just like, do you have a horse? Yeah. Yes. Do you have a white horse? Yes. Do yes. you like horses? Yes, I do. <laughs> You're getting, you know, but it's it's playful. Like you said, it's playful, and yeah. it is part of that social aspect. And yes. a couple of interesting notes by Dr. Joel Witten in one of those videos. I think it's, uh, I don't know if it's, we're pulling this out too soon here, but I think there are important considerations from the POV of a psychologist is the playing, as he says, the singing, the humor. This group lets their hair down as opposed to the adult who says this phenomenon can't be done because it's against the laws of physics. The child simply says, if I want to do it, it can be done. Why do animals and pets and kids all see crazy stuff that we think that's unexplainable. Why do they react to that? Why do you can go and see a, a, a thousand little video clips of kids reacting to something that creeps their parents out, or they have information that the, you know, I can't believe the creepy things that our kids says, just Google that and you'll get plenty of entertainment and plenty of chills. But what is going on here? And I think the, the openness to that, again, the social nature of it, the openness of the, uh, the mindset of a child, or in uh, terms of let's say, metaphysical, meditational kind of things, having the mindset of the, the beginner's mind, as uh, brain coaches would say, as Jim Quick would say, uh, the beginner's mind. And there's something to that, that openness, rather than saying like, oh, this is a bunch of baloney, but I'll do this for uh, every week for a year. You know, like, it, and even then though, you might start to, I, I remember in my psychology class back in college is that uh, they would take people who were non-believers and just have them go to church every Sunday. Like, you don't have to believe anything. You just, just go. And after a while, they started to develop some form of faith. Right. Just doing the motions uh, produces an effect. So Joel Witten says, uh, 
you know, this is all done in a laboratory. It's reproducible. But what are these psychological conditions necessary to produce the phenomenon? So as he said, the humor, the childlike approach. Uh, secondly, what does this wrapping and the table mean symbolically? Is it some kind of concentration of energy or is it an elaborate defense mechanism against some deep-seated unconscious conflict? Now, that's a real psychologist uh, approach yeah. there. It's like, yeah. are you doing this because there's something that you're reacting to you don't even know, but it is that unconscious defense mechanism to some prior childhood conflict perhaps, or something within you that says you're causing this because it's a reaction you're not even personally aware of. It's so deep down, but it's coming out through your hands. Right. And it's making noise, which is weird. Third, he says, the group is involved in a joint feeling of mutuality. Each member almost intuitively senses the other person and their feelings, and as such, it has important overtones in various group programs. There's something about the collective engagement and experience that facilitates this phenomenon. It's a group thing. Not that you can't do it by yourself. There's certainly a lot of people that uh, practice it and try, but your power is multiplied. There's an effect multiplier, a force yeah. multiplier here. Yeah. It's very weak. It's very uh, subtle, but altogether, if we join in and have fun, you might be able to do something like this. And that's also what they were trying to prove. Well, when you look at the totality of what these folks experienced, if it's real and it's not actively and concurrently coming from their minds through some not yet understood force, then is it possible they might have created a thought form, something that has a little more independence? Now, when we return in part two, we'll discuss our own theories and ideas behind the machinations of who or what Philip might have been, including the possibility that the group of eight, as they called themselves, may have actually created a simple form of a being documented in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, a tulpa. We'll leave you with a few thoughts on this from famed Belgian-French explorer, author, spiritualist, Buddhist, anarchist, opera singer, and philosopher, Alexandra David Neal's 1929 book, Magic and Mystery in Tibet. That is one heck of a Twitter bio. Yeah, <laughs> she was pretty CV. awesome. Yeah, and she's actually all of those things rather than, yeah. <laughs> and then people pretending, yeah. Well, this is what she had to say. The practice of creating a tulpa is considered as fraught with danger for everyone who has not reached a high mental and spiritual degree of enlightenment and is not fully aware of the nature of the psychic forces at work in the process. Once the tulpa is endowed with enough vitality to be capable of playing the part of a real being, it tends to free itself from its maker's control. This, say Tibetan occultists, happens nearly mechanically, just as the child, when his body is completed and able to live apart, leaves its mother's womb. Sometimes the phantom becomes a rebellious son, and one hears of uncanny struggles that have taken place between magicians and their creatures, the former being severely hurt or even killed by the latter. <laughs> That's going to wrap up part one of our series on Conjuring Philip. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid, astonishing junk drawer, which most of the time we do live on video for our patrons at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. 
In fact, in the next one, we'll be reviewing the video footage of the Philip experiment with our special guest, Richard Haddam. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Hi. My name is spelled. Hi, I'm Marley Van Orden. Galaxy Wide and Perpetuity. Galaxy Wide, Wide and Perp and Perpetuity. In Perpetuity. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.